It's a joy to be here, and I want to start by saying thank you to Pastor Eric and to the elders for this opportunity. Um, it, is, it was wonderful singing together. As I was thinking, I'm a Spaniard. I grew up in Spain, uh, as you can tell by this accent that I have. Um, and here I am, worshiping God with the saints. A little foretaste for of heaven, right? What a joy it's going to be with so many nations, so many people from all over the world uh, worshiping Christ and the Father in the Spirit. So anyway, let me share a little bit about Spain, what's going on, and then we'll go into the world, uh, the word, not the world. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's my family, my wife, Jen, uh, our oldest, he's um, Ollie, he's eight. He was born in California, so he's going to tell you if he was here that he's Californian, uh, from L.A. Um, then Eden, she is seven. Caleb, he is five, and he's going to be six in August. And then Zoe, she is four, and she's a talker. Uh, she talks and talks and talks. Um, we love them. We are blessed by them. They, God uses our children to bring out our sin more and more and to realize that we're not as patient and loving as we thought we were. Um, but yeah, it is, um, it is, these are the people we get to influence the most and truly our legacy in that sense. So we pray for them and we love them. They are with the in-laws, as he said. And, uh, but yeah, they probably would love to be here after yesterday and all the fun things that we did. Um, but yeah. Well, anyway, let me tell you, next slide, please, about the little, the ministry. Um, I serve um, mainly in two areas, the church, local church in Leon, and then the seminary. Um, so uh, let me tell you a little bit about the church and then the seminary and the church. Um, yeah, can you move on the next slide? Thank you. Um, that's a picture it should show in there eventually. Uh, the <laughs> like... Yeah, but anyway, it doesn't matter. There's a picture for church, and you'll see it. Uh, yeah, that, there it is. So, uh, well, praise God for that. Um, so you get an idea that Spain is not like the States, obviously, and uh, Christianity is such a small uh, um, percent, percent, percentage of the population. And maybe uh, 0.8% of the population are evangelicals, like true, genuine evangelicals. So... Uh, we're talking about less than a million people in the country. Um, that's a little, little it's really small amount of people. And, but yeah, we are thankful for what God is doing in Leon. Uh, we are four hours away, more or less, from Madrid, which is the capital. And at the church, I serve as one of the leaders. And um, uh, my main ministry is with discipleship and teaching. Uh, but I do whatever I'm asked to do. I wear many hats. And next picture, please. You'll see we serve in many different areas. Like I also play with, play with the band. I also take care of the sound. I train the sound, our sound guys. And we have a very complicated system that took me hours to figure out. But um, thankfully now they do it. Um, yeah, my wife sings also in the worship um, team. And, well, we do whatever. Um, yeah, but we love to... Our main role just to develop that, which is discipling and teaching and preaching. Um, so we're thankful for the opportunity to be there. Um, it is uh, a privilege. Like, next picture, please. Um, you'll see our building. And the reason why I'm showing a picture of our building, this is a new building. It's a, a building that's in a property that the government gave us for free. No, no uh, strings attached uh, in that sense. Um, and... So that you understand a little bit about um, Spanish culture, for a Spaniard to go and meet God, you have to go to a cathedral. That's the mindset 
Catholicism has been part of our culture for centuries. Since the, uh, the year 711, uh, Catholicism has become the official religion of the country. In fact, our country has become as such as a nation thanks to Catholicism. Uh, before that, we were just a bunch of tribes like Ryan, running all over the place. And one of the Visigoths kings um, united them through the banner of religion. So uh, it is a difficult to understand if you didn't grow up there. But to see how our the identi- identity as Spaniards is always linked to Catholicism. To such a degree, if you reject Catholicism, you are rejecting your national identity. You become a par- pariah kind of thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, because of the, in the 19, from the 1930s to the 1970s, we have a wonderful, please notice my sarcasm, um, dictator. Um, we were persecuted as a church. We were not allowed to gather in public to preach the gospel. Some of our guys, like there is still a man in our church, an older man who's been in jail because of preaching the gospel, who's been stoned as well. And that's very recent. Like, the, as he mentioned, democracy is the first constitution for 1976. And true religious freedom, we didn't really experience that till 2000. So only 20 years ago. Um, so churches, we hide or we hid uh, in little basements. And, and for a Spaniard, that always kind of like meant a cult. Because we have that kind of like cathedral building look like, like, oh, they're a spiritual place, a divine place. Which, you know, it's just a building, right? A building doesn't really matter. Um, but because in God's grace and generosity, we were able to have and build this building. And now we know God only saves. He's the one who brings the people, right? But even culturally speaking, at a human level, Spaniards are free to come in. For the first time in our history, they just walk in. They didn't do it before because we were in a basement. It was a cult. But now for them, that looks like a cathedral, which is not. <laughs> but it looks like a modern cathedral. So they'll come in. I'm working in my office in the morning, staying there. And all of a sudden, I see people just walking in. It's like, and they're like, uh, can we see the building? I was like, yeah, sure. And as soon as you start giving them the tour, they always will ask, like, so what's the difference between this and Catholicism? It's like, oh, what a great question. <laughs> so let me tell you about it. It's like. And you just give them the gospel. And they'll, they'll be like, ah, yeah, sure, that's what you believe. It's like, no, but that's the truth. It doesn't matter. But it's the truth. <laughs> um, but anyway, the point is like they walk in. And then even you're preaching sometimes. And you see how they just walk in to listen to the sermon. They're there standing in the back for five minutes and they walk out. But even in those moments when you realize that there are visitors just from the area. Just like whatever you're saying, you kind of change that. And you give the gospel and move on. Uh, uh, but yeah, it is a great opportunity. We don't know how many God is going to save. We pray that he will save many. Uh, that this building will be filled and full with um, believers, not just attendees. Uh, we don't want bench warmers. Uh, we want people who love the Lord. Uh, but as a church, we are excited with different projects. So our next slide, please. We just sent a year ago our family, our dear family from our church, sent them out to plant a church in Santiago de Compostela. That's a city right in northern Spain where the um, Camino de Santiago, the James Way, I don't know if you heard about that, ends. The tradition will say, the Catholic tradition, which is not true, but they will say that the Apostle James died in Jerusalem and he was buried in a stone, very heavy stone coffin. 
And somehow that coffin got to the Mediterranean Sea and floated through the entire Mediterranean Sea, then crossed the, the Gibraltar um, Gap, whatever it's called in English, where Africa and Spain meet, and then went over the Atlantic Ocean and somehow made it to the Cantabric Sea and then landed in Santiago de Compostela. So they built a cathedral in his honor, and he's buried there. That's what tradition will say. Um, Leon, by the way, also claims to have the Holy Grail, and you see it exposed in a little place. So, I mean, it's, it's just sad. It is really sad. But we, was, we sent them. There's just it's a little church with a few families, uh, up to maybe 12 to 15 people. They went there faithfully preaching and discipling and trying to preach the gospel. We love them. We're excited for what they're doing, whether that group grows to be in the thousands or they're just 15 for the rest of their life. But to just he's a faithful man who will continue preaching and discipling, and that's what we want. Um, also, we, we are excited about salvation. We see, we're seeing people coming to know the Lord as a Savior, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, this lady, uh, this young lady, her name is Mary. She's with my wife. She's an exchange student. She just came from Ireland, Ireland, right? Yeah. Ireland to, to study for a few months. Uh, God used that to bring her to salvation in Leon. And I was telling her, like, before we came, because we won't see her again. She's going back to her home. Like, what a, what a joy is to know that God brought her to Spain to be safe here, to know the gospel. And now he gets to go back home and preach the same gospel. Um, the, the, the couple on top, they're a dear family, and I have them there with their permission as an example of things that are happening and going on uh, at our church. That um, people are moving, like, all over the country to just come and be part of our church. Which for us, I don't know if that's very common here, but for us that's very strange. Most people will move because of a job or college, but never because of trying to find a good, healthy, sound church. So they were eight hours away in the south. They, they left their stuff there. They sold everything, and they came to be part of a church. They were saved through YouTube. They were listening to one of my sermons, preach online, and God saved them. And the first thing that they realized is like, we need to be in that church. And they came, and it is a joy. And then another family of that, of our church, when they found out they were coming, bought a little flat for them, a little apartment, so that they, it would be easy, that transition for them, and he's renting it to them at such a low price. Um, that's what the work of Christ, or what Christ does. It is not because we're special people, we're wonderful. No, it's because of Christ, and the love, his love for believers. Uh, that he gives us toward other believers. And so we are, it is ex- exciting times for us. We went through really difficult, hard times several years ago. So now we uh, are um, thankful and grateful that we get to enjoy these blessings. Uh, we know that it's not, it's not always going to be like that, but we will continue to do what we do faithfully, whether we see the fruit or not. So, Regarding the seminary, um, next slide, please. Um, and you can skip a couple of them until you see a bunch of guys. Um, as uh, Pastor Eric said, I serve as academic dean. Um, I work there. I've been working there for eight years, developing c- uh, courses, content, academic curriculum, things like that, rubrics. You know, so fun. Uh, 
But anyway, uh, we as a seminary, we now offer uh, four different programs. Uh, three of them are seminar level, master level degree. One of them is just a small de degree, a one-year degree at a bachelor's level degree. That's for lay people, whether women or men, if they want to be trained at a basic level on the um, theology, hermeneutics, uh, ministry, um, and Bible survey. Uh, is that program is uh, is to fill the gap gap with uh, pretty much Sunday school teachers, uh, those uh, guys who teach our kids or our youth. We still, they still need some kind of training, some kind of help uh, to not mess up what the Bible says, right? Especially with Old Testament stories. Um, but anyway, um, I just want to uh, focus. This is our fac faculty. Um, we're missing a guy in the picture. Uh, but yeah, it is a joy to see that some of those guys, the guy in the yellow shirt and then the guy with the blue and the back with the blue jersey and the, with the plaid. Those are our graduates. Everybody else is like a graduate of TMS or other seminary in the States. But these, little by little, we've been raising our own faculty from our own graduates. And um, those are scholars in their area. So they are well-trained. And that's our goal, to eventually not having to leave our country and come to a different country, which I'm really thankful for the States. Uh, this country has given me my education, my wife, many things. Um, but yeah, that shouldn't be the idea, right? It should be uh, local training. So uh, they are great guys. Uh, this guy here in the little pink color shirt is Gus Pidal. He just, uh, he's an American. He's been serving there for 11 years. And now the Lord has called them to uh, return home. So they're here. Um, we call, I always joke around, and now we say that we call him Judas. <laughs> he's a really good friend. That's why I can say this. Um, but I got really used to him. So next picture, please. Uh, just This picture represents all the churches among our graduates. Um, so this, for us, it is overwhelming in a good sense to see this in Spain. Um, it is just by God's grace. So we, at this moment, at a similar level, uh, we have 87 graduates. If we count the graduates of our certificate, we have almost 120 graduates. But all these graduates that represent these churches, most of them are pastors, elders, or are preaching um, pretty much every week. Um, so it is a joy. We have even graduates from Paris, Germany, Ecuador, that have come to be trained by us and then went back to their countries. We're working now. We've been working hard, and we still continue to work hard on developing an extension in Portugal, Lisbon. They're in that corner where you see those little four dots. Because we have already eight graduates from there that represent four churches. And they have invited us to come and establish a seminary there. So it's going to be a long-term goal. The goal is to be able to finish in 10 years. Uh, and we've been working, working towards it for the last three years already. Um, so it's going to be a slow process. But we are thankful for that opportunity and excited to see what the Lord is going to do in the entire peninsula. Not just Spain. Um, so I just want to share with you the story of one guy, one of our graduates. Uh, next picture, please. Um, his name is Christian. And he is planting a church with two other of our graduates. So three of them. They're in Oviedo, an hour and a, hour and a half away from Leon. So we keep in touch. We support them. We, there is a, a good, healthy ministerial relationship or ministry relationship. And he comes to us for... Uh, for help, counsel, and things like that. Well, he started with um, 15 people in his living room. 
And in less than a year, now they had to get a building because now there are 90 people, um, which is just numbers. But for us as in Spain, that's not normal. The average church is like 40 to 50 people. Uh, so God is doing something, and we are extremely thankful. We have several f- members of our faculty that are planting churches. Uh, in Madrid, uh, um, in Santiago de Compostela, then we have other, other professors that are um, trying to turn some churches around, and God is blessing that effort as, as well. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see where the Lord takes us, but it is exciting times for us. Uh, next picture, you'll see a couple of pictures showing the last graduation. This was in June. This is our our um, graduates from the expository preaching program. Then the next picture will show you the graduates from our first group of graduates from our bachelor's level program. Um, and yeah, they they are happy and they were happy to finish. Um, next slide. Um, I also have other ministry opportunities. It's not just the church and the seminary. I um, often get invited to preach at different churches, which I'm thankful for. I was uh, invited also as well to train, to teach other schools, uh, and to train them how to better develop academic uh, curriculums and programs to train pastors from different countries. And also publication. God is um, giving me different opportunities to publish here in the States, in several books on theology books, and now and a publisher in Spain has uh, contacted me a year ago and want to have a book on textual criticism. So uh, I work on that book with other three, three, three other guys, and it was published last year, and it seems it's been received well, and some seminaries, even in the States, who offer an MDF in Spanish are using that book as a text, uh, textbook. Now I'm working on another project, uh, um, different chapters for a book, a textbook, here for the states in English uh, on missions and um, chapters on how to develop, um, uh, how to train pastors at an academic level. So yeah, it's different opportunities, um, but in the end, all this doesn't, in one sense, really matter. Uh, we know and understand that our legacy is our godliness that will be examined when we face Christ based on godliness and not uh, this kind of thing. But we are thankful for the things that we can do and things that will benefit the church, tools that we'll leave behind for the church, and may God use them for his glory. So a few uh, prayer requests. Um, last slide, please. Um, these are my kids. And so, yes, as I was saying, just please pray for uh, godly pastors, that God will raise a generation of preachers. We need godly churches in Spain. So we need uh, people who could shepherd uh, these churches. We also need people that could be saved to fill these churches up. Um, so pray for salvation. We do need that. But we need a generation of uh, thinkers, theologians, preachers who are godly, love the church, love Christ, and can take care of these churches. Also pray for the salvation of our children, our support. That's why we're here in the States. We are raising support. So we are in need of that. So please keep that in mind. And then a personal one is my health. I've never been known for having a strong health, and now I'm struggling with Lyme disease, and makes my life a little more difficult, but I keep pushing through, and something that has been comforting my heart is to know that um, this body will, in this earth, fallen earth, will never find physical rest until we get to heaven. But Jesus said, come to me, those who are 
labor, right? And you find rest for your soul. It's talking about salvation, but it's true. In this world, I can be, I can have a rested soul, even though my body doesn't want to move the way I want it to move. Um, but yeah, uh, we long for heaven and the resurrection of our glorified bodies. So with that said, let's pray and let's go to Scripture. Our Heavenly Father, we marvel at what you have done. And I marvel at what you're doing here and my brothers and sisters. And thank you for Christ who made possible this. Thank you that you have reconciled us with yourself through the work of your Son. But also that you have reconciled us with one another. That we can be from different countries, speak different languages, come from different backgrounds and cultures, and yet love you and long to be with you. And Father, I pray for this morning that you use your word to sanctify believers, but also to save unbelievers, that you help me in my limitations, that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted, and that you use this knowledge that we will acquire through your word to become love, love for you, a love that obeys you, and love for one another. And a love that will impact the world for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. May 22nd, 2020 has become a dreadful date for air travel in Pakistan. A plane carrying 99 passengers crashed into a residential area. After an exhaustive investigation, the conclusion was that the pilots were at fault. That the accident was caused by human negligence. During the long descent, when the plane was getting ready to um, land, the pilots released the landing gear. But for some strange reason, somehow, they, as soon as they were about to hit the ground, they just put it up again. And the plane just hit the runway, and that hit, that impact, damaged the engines, both engines of the plane. The pilots were able somehow to take flight again, to hopefully release the landing gear again, and eventually to make an emergency landing. But sadly, the, the damage that the engines sustained um, forced them, made them to stop. So that plane crashed into a nearby building, killing, killing 97 people. After listening to the black box, the authorities said that the pilots were the problem of the situation. And what was happening is that they were distracted. They were not paying attention because they were having a heated argument about COVID-19. One of the pilots thought that it was a hoax. While the other pilot had already buried several family members who had died of this virus. So you can imagine the situation. That aircraft cockpit became kind of like a boxing ring. On one corner, you have one pilot wearing blue gloves. On the other corner, another pilot wearing red gloves. And they were fighting one another. And that fight became such a distraction that they didn't realize they didn't have the landing gears ready to land. They forgot their true priority, which was to land the plane. The consequences of that distraction, the consequences of that mistake were catastrophic. As believers, we could also face the same danger. There are times in our life when we are distracted. And when we make what is secondary 
a primary thing. We focus our attention on something that doesn't really matter. And this is a very real and common danger for us. But we cannot let that lead us into thinking that God is going to make the same mistake. That somehow he also gets distracted. That somehow he will get his priorities confused. If something is a priority for God, he will bring it to completion. He will get it done. And that's great news for us. Because we can be certain that God will fulfill all of his priorities for our life as believers. And the passage that we're going to be studying this morning is going to show us two of these priorities. Priorities that he has for his people. And if they are his priorities, we can be certain of this. That he will get them done. That they will be a reality in us. And I'm talking about John 17 verses 11 through 19. So before we continue, let's read these verses. John 17, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And notice what Jesus is praying to his father. He's saying, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and their, wor- their world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This passage, we learn two priorities that Christ has for our life. And the first priority we're going to study in verses 11 through 16 is our protection. His priority is our protection. The second priority in verses 17 through 19 is our sanctification. Simple. Our protection and our sanctification. And obviously, if these are his priorities, they should also be ours. But the important thing that I would like for you to keep in mind is that these are the priorities that Jesus has and he is entrusting to his father. The main goal of these verses is not to call us to protect our faith or to grow in holiness, both which are biblical biblical and very needed. But in this specific case, Jesus is asking to his father, To place himself in a position in which he becomes responsible for carrying out these priorities in us. Hope you see the difference, right? Because our protection and sanctification do not rest on on effort. We still can find comfort and peace in God knowing that Christ is entrusting them to his father. 
that the one who said, whatever I ask my father, he will give to me, is now asking his father, you keep them, protect them, you sanctify them. If we are saved, it will be impossible for Satan to snatch us from the hand of the father. Even if it was possible for us to deny Christ three times as Peter did. If we belong to God, we will grow in holiness. Even if the demons make it their, make it their life goal to drag, drag us into the pit of sin. If, it's, if God's priority is to protect and sanctify us, who could stop him? We'll be protected and we'll grow in holiness. Nobody... Not your flesh, not your sin, not the world, not Satan and his evil army could take away God's protection and God's sanctification in a true believer's life. Because these are the son's priority and therefore become the father's priority. No matter what, we can be certain of this, that while we are in this world, we'll be protected and we'll be sanctified. This should be reason enough to rejoice, but especially to persevere faithful to Christ till the end. So with that said, let's look at the first priority that God has for our life. And in verses 11 through 16, we see that his priority is our protection. Look at the first half of verse 11. Jesus is saying, I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Jesus is about to face the cross. But before that, he stops and he prays to his wonderful father. And he prays this prayer that we find in chapter 17. And the first thing that he does is that he prays for himself. And he's requesting the father that he will glorify him through his death, resurrection, and ascension. But once he gets that out of the way, he prays for his disciples. He knows that he is a moment, a moment away from the cross. That's why he's saying, I'm no longer in the world. Not because he already left. He was there in front of his disciples praying for them. But because he had crossed the point of no return. There was no turning back for him. He, has his, he had his eyes set on Golgotha, on the cross. And nothing was going to change his mind. And this path was there, laid out for Christ, but not for his disciples. Christ, Jesus, was going to leave the world through the cross and return to the Father. But his followers were going to stay behind in the world. It almost seems at a human level that they were going to be left alone and without protection from the world. So how does Jesus solve this problem? Well, he prays. And he prays to his father. And he asks him to protect them. Second half of verse 11 says, Holy Father, keep them. It's interesting that Jesus is not asking his disciples to protect themselves. He's not telling them hide until things like calm down. He also doesn't plead to the government. To create laws that should grant the church religious freedom. 
Instead, what he does is that he lifts his eyes to the sky. And he looks at his father who's sitting on the throne of thrones. And he says, you, holy father, you keep them. And that title, holy father, should jump off the page of the scripture. It stands out by itself. It's a unique combination. Those two words, father and holy together, don't appear again in scripture. And Jesus is using that name, that title, because he wants his disciples to know this. If God is Father and he is holy, then he is the perfect Father. Which is really important to understand. Because Jesus is basing our protection on this attribute of God. On the fact that he is the perfect Father. And this is why he is saying, you keep them in your name. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is telling, is praying, protect them according to your holy, perfect nature and role as the sinless father who you are. And since he, since he is that kind of father, he always does what is best for his children. Because he loves them without sin. He loves us without selflessness. He loves us without flaw. So Jesus knew that there was no better person to whom he could entrust our protection than to the Holy Father, the perfect Father. Several years ago, we lived in an eight-story building. And one afternoon, I was playing with one of my sons, and accidentally, he got locked into his bathroom. And when my son noticed that he couldn't open the door, he began yelling, Daddy, Daddy, and started crying. So at first, I tried to uh, take the lock apart to see if I could get in. But the latch bolt somehow came out of place and was stuck in the door frame or the frame door. And there was no way I could dismantle that from the outside. So at that time, Oliver, who was only two years old, almost two years old, he began crying louder and louder, and he got more nervous. And that, that cry somehow changed. It went from confusion to fear. He was now scared. He was terrified. So I just tried busting the door down, like in the movies. You know, like, <laughs> and I realized that it hurts. And I did nothing to the door. So it was going to be much harder than in the movies. So I decided, okay, I can't. So I'm going to go to the next room. I step out of the window, which was three stories high. Grab onto the bricks of the wall. And climb like a Spider-Man to Oliver's room, and get in through his window. I could have fallen and killed myself. But I didn't even think about it, which probably I should have, but I didn't. I didn't even think how we both now were going to get out of that room. (laughs) But my son was desperate. My only desire was to protect him, to be there, to comfort him. Because why? Because I am his father, and I love him. If we, who are sinners, and far, far from being perfect parents, are willing to climb out of the window of a third-story apartment to protect our children, how much more willing will God be? How much more? Because He is the Holy Father. The perfect Father. What encouragement, right? To know that our protection 
is entrusted to the one who will always do it according to his holy character. He doesn't have a double agenda. He's not double-minded. He's not using us for his evil purposes. He's loving us in the midst of the hardest of our circumstances. In such a way that we can rest assured that whatever happens, whether it's hard or easy, whether it's painful or pleasant, whether it's a trial or a blessing, he is protecting us. When we are doubting, when our faith is weak, he is protecting us. When the world hates us, he still protects us. When Satan himself wants to destroy us, he is protecting us. And Christ isn't just asking the Father to keep us for no reason at all. He has a purpose in mind, a specific purpose, which is that we would be one as they are one. The end of verse 11 says, Holy Father, keep them, and this is the goal, that they may be one even as we are one. And this is the same unity that there is between the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this verse, in this specific moment, is not talking about what is called ontological unity. Later in verses 21 and 22, Christ will talk about this kind of unity. But right now, he's not asking the Father that we would put his character on display. That we as partakers of the divine nature will also show his holiness and godliness and patience. And whatever attribute we can communicate that is from God. Instead, this verse is referring to how the Son and the Father, united as one, sought to accomplish the same mission which was to reveal God. In verses 4 through 6 of this chapter, Jesus claims that he did not come to this world with a different plan than the Father's. That he came to do what the Father asked him to do. That his words were so specific and so attached to the Father's mission that he only said whatever the Father wanted him to say. He only did what the Father wanted him to do. The Father sent His Son to accomplish the Father's work and to speak the Father's word. In other words, the Father sent the Son to reveal the Father. And the Son came willingly to reveal the Father. They both were united with the same goal, to make God known. Likewise, He's praying the same thing for us. That we are one. One with the same mission. One that we understand that we are left on this earth to also make God known. But in our case, we did not reveal the Father. We simply stand our finger and we point to the one who is the perfect image of the Father. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is asking the Father to protect us in such a way that his disciples would remain on this earth to proclaim him to continue with the same mission of making the father known a commentator explains this as follows and i quote he says the disciples are not in this world to do their work nor to develop their own doctrine instead 
they all should, without hesitation, do the work of God. And now listen to this. They must be one in order to proclaim the same testimony of Christ to the world. End quote. Pretty much what he is saying in this prayer and what this commentary is explaining is that we, we will not get distracted with our mission. That God will protect us in such a way that we understand that we are left here with a specific plan. That is to continue to proclaim Christ, the one who reveals the Father. But the question is there. Why would it be necessary for Jesus to ask the Father to keep his son in his name? Well, because as we were saying before, he would no longer be on earth to protect Verse 12 says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the sum of, of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is the good shepherd, and as such, he was protecting his own sheep. But his protection will remain as long as he was with them on earth. However, now he was going back to the Father. And his disciples did not leave with him. In one sense, they were left behind. So it would, it would still need, they will still need divine protection. Because he was guarding, keeping them while he was with them. But now that he's going back to the Father, Christ is asking the Father, you protect them. I did it while I was here. Now I'm returning to you. So you do it. But that could be a problem. Because some, someone might think that Jesus was not able to protect all of his disciples. Because he lost, supposedly he lost Judas, right? And if this were true, and now he's praying the Father to the Father, you keep them in the same way I kept them, somebody could think, well, doesn't it mean then that the Father is not going to be able to keep all of us safe? Because Jesus lost one. Well, he's responding to this so-called problem and affirms that he did not lose anyone. But that everything happened as it was supposed to happen. Second half of verse 12 says, Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was the son of destruction. That is, he was the head that represented all of those who would, who would reject Christ and therefore would be lost, would be destroyed. This traitor ate from the same plate as Jesus, as his teacher, and yet he left his heel against him, as Psalm 41 verse 9 already prophesied centuries ago. Judas was always from the world. He was never a true disciple. And therefore Jesus never kept him. And if, he, if Jesus did not keep him, then he never lost him. Because you cannot lose that which is not yours. Christ truly protected all who were his till the end. And now he's asking the Father to protect all of us in the same way. Way. So if he didn't lose any of them, the Father will not lose any of us. And this truth should bring joy to our heart 
And this is the reason why we read in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This verse shows that Jesus prayed in order. That his disciples would be encouraged in that moment by his words. When he is saying these things, things I speak in the world. He's referring to these verses, verses, verses 11 and 12. Verses that speak about the protection that we'll receive from the Father. He prayed aloud to his Father so that these 11 disciples who were there with him in that moment would listen from his own mouth that his priority was their protection. That even though he was leaving, he was not going to abandon them. They needed to hear that because they were saddened and confused. Very confused. They had placed all their hopes in Christ. They just celebrated the last supper. And they thought that that supper meant or would mean the installation of the kingdom. Why do you think they were fighting in their way to the upper room about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who was going to sit to the right hand of Jesus. Because they thought that's it. That's why he was longing so much. To have this dinner with us. Because finally he's going to be king. He's going to kick out the Romans. And we're going to rule with him forever. We left everything for this guy. We left our families. Our jobs. Our homes. Everything. They believed that he was the true Messiah. And all of a sudden. Jesus is telling them. I have to leave. They were confused. And amid all this uncertainty, Jesus is asking the Father to protect them. And of course, the Father was going to protect them. Jesus didn't have to convince the Father to keep his disciples. But he prayed in that way so that he could convince his disciples that the Father will keep them. When these men heard these words, they should have rejoiced. And this is why Jesus ends this verse by saying, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This joy is not a temporary happiness. It is the joy of Christ. It is the peace of mind and the contentment of the soul that only Jesus brings and produces. That he only gives. And he doesn't give it in part, but in full. If his priority is my protection, and that's why he's asking the Father to protect me, then I should trust that no matter what happens in this world, God will keep me till the end. And these are not empty words. Because the world in which he left us to give testimony of him It's a hostile world. Verse 14. Notice what he says. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. If the world hated Jesus. Because he didn't belong to the world. And now he's leaving his disciples behind in the world. It only makes sense that the world will hate us. Because we are not of this role. 
And what do you think that in chapter 16, in the first three verses, Jesus is telling them, look, listen to this. Some of you are going to be thrown in jail. Others are going to be killed. And when they kill you, they're going to think they're doing a godly thing. Because they hate you so much, that much, that they will put the title of God into this cruel act. God promises persecution. He promises suffering. He promises troubles from the world. The world will never be our friend. In fact, it's probably one of our worst enemies. And if this is true, which by the way, it is true. Why do we often seek the world's approval or respect? Why are we so concerned about what they may think of us or our reputation? It is a system designed and controlled by the prince of the power of the earth, by Satan himself. A system designed to blind unbelievers in their own sin and to destroy believers. But, and this is a huge but, the Father protects us in this world because it is his son's priority. In light of this truth, we can now understand why Jesus is requesting what he is requesting in verse 15. He's saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. If I fall in a pit full of rattlesnakes, the first and only thing that I would want would be to run away. To get out of there as quick as possible. So if the world is Satan's pit, and he's that snake seeking to poison us with his venom, I would expect that God would protect us by taking us out of the pit of the world world but that's not what jesus is asking the son whose priority is our protection is requesting that his father wouldn't take us from the world at least yet why good question right why thanks for asking because we need to go to the world to proclaim his name that is the mission that Jesus entrusted his disciples a few verses before in chapter 15, verse 27. The Spirit will testify of me through you. And this is the mission that he has given us in the great great commission. But how can we preach Christ if we are not in the world? How can we proclaim him if we isolate ourselves from the world? How can we fulfill our mission if we do not spend time with unbelievers? Or we do not have friends who are not Christians? To separate us from the world would fully contradict the purpose for which Christ has left us in the world. John MacArthur said, the reason why we are still on this earth is to preach the gospel to the world. This mission is the only thing that we could, could do better on earth sorry, than in heaven. End quote. If this is the case, 
if we must remain in the world, then we truly need, what we truly need is to be protected from the prince of this world. And that's why Jesus said, I ask, verse 15, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is asking the Father to protect us from Satan himself. The world hates Christ because Satan, who controls the system of this world, also hates Christ. If it were up to him, we would have already destroyed every believer. The only reason why we have persevered up to this moment, the only reason why we haven't denied the faith, why we haven't rejected Jesus or betrayed him, the only reason why we haven't compromised the gospel is because the Father is protecting us. Why do you think that 2,000 years later, you guys have received the gospel in the, in the other side of the world? Faithfully, a faithful message that saves people. Because God protected his church through Nero while he persecuted the Christians. Through Diocletian in the third century while he tried to destroy scripture. Through Constantine and his, his syncretism, joining paganism with Christianity through the Dark Ages, through the Counter-Reformation, Inquisition, German liberal, liberalism, postmodernism, all these direct attacks to the truth and the gospel and the church. It doesn't matter what the gates of hell spit at us. God will protect us. It doesn't matter how hot it gets. We'll be protected. But this protection is only reserved for those who are not of this world. That's why verse 16 highlights once again what Jesus said already in verse 14. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's wonderful to think that we are safe in a, in a world that truly, truly hates us. That Satan will not be able to destroy the faith of any of God's children. That all true believers will persevere till the end. But this protection is only for those who belong to God. If you have not received Christ. If you have not trusted in his death for the forgiveness of sins. And in his resurrection for your justification. And have turned your back away from sin. And love him. You still are of the world. You are under the domain of Satan. And you are headed to destruction. And if that's your case, the only thing I can say is believe and repent. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh who lived the sinless life. Died the perfect death and rose from the dead. Declaring with power that he is the Messiah. The Savior of the world. Repent. Turn your back to sin. And obey and love God. You could not be in better hands than in the hands of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Come to Christ for forgiveness, but come to Him for His protection. We need it. You need it. If the Father is protecting us from the evil one, how soon we respond to this truth? Well, the same way as the disciples. Go to the world and preach Christ. Go to the battlefield 
face the hatred of the world controlled by Satan himself and proclaim that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The protection of the Father is such that when we preach that name, the devil who is controlling the world and who hates those who proclaim him still cannot destroy us. So why do we fear? There is no opposition that could extinguish the faith of a true believer. But this has nothing to do with our own effort. It is all thanks to the Father who is keeping us because it's the priority of God the Son. This passage continues and in verse 17 through 19 we find a second priority which is our sanctification. Let's read these verses 17 through 19. Sanctify sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The fact that Jesus would ask the Father to sanctify his disciples, that shows us that our sanctification is not optional. Holiness is the only way to live the Christian life. Which makes sense. Because if we are not of the world... We should not live like the world. And something so basic has become so complex. These people, these these days, people speak of carnal Christians. Or Christians who have faded away. Or professing Christians who do not practice their faith. All of these categories define so-called Christians as people who despite being protected from God, uh, by God, from the world, is still live like the world. And I hope that after everything that we said in verses 11 through 16, you can see what a terrible mistake it is to think like that. Because if the Father is protecting us from the evil one who uses their world to destroy us, and yet we are living like the world, there are only two options. Well, first one, that either the Father is not protecting us, or the second is that we belong to the world. Either one, whatever the final option is, the consequences are terrible. Because if the Father is not protecting some of us, then that means he's not able to protect all of us. And if you are of the world, you still are headed towards destruction. He says it's clear the way he prays our sanctification is built upon the Father's protection. In other words, if the Father protects you, you will be sanctified. Protection and sanctification are the two sides of the same coin. So with this said, what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, on the one hand, it is more than behaving like a moral person or having a good reputation. Because the Pharisees, they were very moral, right? And they had a very good testimony. And I hope that you know that obviously they were not being sanctified. 
on the other hand, being sanctified is not trying to avoid the things that the world does. You could deprive yourself from worldly pleasures or not to dress as the world does, not to be entertained like the world, not to speak like the world and still be like the world. To be sanctified is to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. Is to put off everything that is born of the flesh and to put on all that is spiritual and divine. It is to show the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. It is reflecting the character of Jesus Christ who said, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely, lowly in heart. It is to give forth the sweet aroma of Christ wherever you go. People will marvel, not at you, not at us, but at Christ. It is true that we will sin. But in the end, what we are characterized is by love and holiness. And a love that obeys. And who could make such a huge change in us? Who, would, who could take sinners dead in their trespasses and sins, rebellious who hated God and turned them around and turned them into worshippers of God, into lovers of Christ, into his disciples. Who could do such a thing? The Father, the Holy Father. Christ is still praying to his Holy Father. And the same Father whom he addressed before to say, you protect them, now is saying, is telling to the same Holy Father, you sanctify them. Because only a Holy Father could give birth to holy children. The fact that our sanctification is God's priority doesn't mean that we don't need to worry about it. It's interesting how this verse continues. Verse 17, when it says, sanctify them in the truth. But then he continues and says, your word is truth. It's true that God sanctifies us, but he does it through the truth. And not just any truth. The instrument that the Father uses to make, to make us more into the likeness of his Son is his word. The same word that led us to salvation continues his work in us, sanctifying us. However, this word doesn't work in us as if by magic. To have a Bible in your home doesn't sanctify you. To carry your Bible to church doesn't sanctify you. You must know it. You need to study it. You need to memorize it. You need to understand it. And obey it. You need to read it in such a way that your desire is to know God as you read it. So that in this way and only this way, the Father will sanctify you. It's His work. It's His doing. But if we don't put the effort to have the Word dwell richly in our hearts, we will be weak believers. Jesus has been clear, nothing other than scripture will sanctify us. So let's be careful not to fall into the mistake of thinking that somehow the wisdom of man is able to make us more like God. As Spurgeon said, brethren, this Bible is enough. Truth is neither your opinion nor mine, your message nor mine. That which sanctifies man is not only truth, but is the particular Truth, which is revealed in God's word. 
Thy word is truth. End quote. Why is our sanctification a priority for Christ? Well, the passage answers and gives us two reasons. First, because he sends us into the world. And second, because he went to the cross to sanctify us. Look at verses 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Remember what we're saying in the beginning. The reason why the disciples didn't ascend with Jesus when he went to heaven and stayed in this world is because he sent them to preach the gospel to all nations. And as the Father sent his Son to reveal him, now the Son is sending his disciples to proclaim him. And this is why our sanctification is so important because when we preach Christ, we represent Christ. Our life should match our message. Jesus does not separate the proclamation of the gospel with the practice of the gospel. If God is the Holy Father, only his holy children could give testimony of the Holy Son. And this should be reason enough to make it clear that our sanctification is God's priority and also should be our priority for our life. But there is more. Jesus says that he consecrated himself so that we would be sanctified. Verse 19, once again, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. When Jesus said, I consecrated myself, he's saying that he set himself apart. For the sake of his disciples. To achieve a specific goal. And he's using the same language than the Old Testament. When the Old Testament talk about this, this, this sheep that were lambs that were set apart as an atoning sacrifice. They were consecrated to that end. So when Jesus is speaking of his consecration. He's speaking of his setting himself apart for the cross. As the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of of our sins. So, so he is saying, I'm going to the cross for this end, to this purpose. And he's not saying in this passage that he's going to the cross for our forgiveness, which is true. But he is saying, I'm also going to the cross for something else, for their sanctification. Jesus died not only to grant us forgiveness, which we need so much, but also that we would grow in holiness. By the word. So I ask you. If Christ. Gave himself up. So that we be holy. Do we really believe. That somehow. The father is going to waste the son's blood. And not sanctify us. Do you really believe. That there could be. A so called Christian. Who is not growing in holiness. Of course not. It's impossible because the Father is pruning us. The Father is sanctifying every disciple of Jesus because it's the priority of Christ. Because he went to the cross so that we will be sanctified. And do you know what this is good news? It really is great news for us. We have been commissioned to go into the world and make disciples. But for that to happen, we must dip our toes 
into the ocean of the world. We need to establish relationships with people from the world. Work with unbelievers. Be among sinners. Develop friendships with unsafe people. But obviously without sinning like they do. And this, it could be a problem. Because that means we are going to be surrounded by their sin. And I don't know you, but I don't want to get stained by their sin. But the promise is that God will keep us holy through his word while we are in the world. Isn't it amazing to think that we don't need to go to heaven to start walking in holiness? We don't need to isolate ourselves from the world to be holy. And when sin stains us, because it will, when that happens, the cleansing work of the word, thanks to that, that that power that it has, we can wash our feet and be clean again and move on and continue to proclaim Christ to the world. We must go to the front lines of the battle. And infiltrate enemy territory. We must descend into the disgusting sewer of a sinning world. Without sin. But we must do it to preach salvation through Jesus Christ alone. But remember, as we do this, the Father will protect us from the enemy of our souls who is ruling the world. He will keep us holy through his word while we are in the world. Why? Because it is the priority of the son. Because our protection and sanctification are his priorities. What else do we need to go out into the world? Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. And he lived close to 95 years And his life ended as a martyr in the Roman Colosseum. During his hearing, the governor had pity on him because of his old age. So he was trying to convince him to deny Christ. And he, 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 to what, to which Polycarp replied, like, I'm pretty sure you heard this before. I have served him 86 years and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme against my king who has saved me? So the governor threatened him with being burned alive. And eventually Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that extinguished because you don't know the fire of eternal damnation reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do with me as you wish. Finally, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. The world sought to destroy Polycarp's faith. The evil one tried to have him deny Christ and abandon the gospel. Compromise the gospel. However, he chose to embrace the flames of this world than to turn his back on his Savior. He died proclaiming Christ to the world. How is it possible that a 90-year-old old man persevere in this way? Well, because the Father protected and sanctified him. The evil one hates us and seeks to destroy our faith. He cannot snatch us from the hand of God. Though the world tries to stain us with sin, 
it will not be able to stop God's, God's sanctifying work in us. Because the priority of God the Father and God the Son, and by implication, God the Spirit as well, is our protection and sanctification. Therefore, let us go with boldness into the world and proclaim Christ as we live holy lives in obedience to the word of God. I cannot think of a better way to finish than with the very, word, very words of Jesus in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to serve all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your protection and your sanctifying work. We thank you for Christ who has entrusted these priorities to you and we know that you will answer your son's prayer. Thank you for the protection that we have in the midst of such a dark society. Please, by your spirit, make us bold. Let us not get coward and let us preach Christ to testify of him and use us as tools in your hands to bring many to salvation while we are in this world. In the name of Jesus, amen.